You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic. I'm Cameron Lulata. And I'm Matt Garasimovich. And today we're covering part one, chapter 10 of Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate as part of our read-along. And we continue along with the now Battle of Stalingrad after the... Uh, kind of traumatic experience for the commanders in the last part onto the arrival of our boy Krimov and the reintroduction of our other boy, the perfect boy, the perfect Soviet man, Vavilov, who is now our, you know, regimental commissar, battalion commissar, some level of official command. Um, anywhere you wanted to start. It, you know, it doesn't matter really what his, his rank is because he's still Vavilov to me. I know he's not maybe the most or at least in the previous novel not the most realistic person perhaps to be depicted i i get he's a certain type i think that type rips though i'm not gonna lie <laughs> I no, love I, him. When, when he and you know his the last surviving members of his unit or whatever they are at that point are under fire and they're like sitting there and they're reminiscing about their lives before the war uh like He's just sitting there talking about how he didn't get to build a stove. You know, he, now his family's not going to have a stove until they figure that out. And it's like, it's so classically socialist realist that you've got these soldiers under fire, like lamenting. Actually, uh, like their stoves. But is. that's, but, but yeah. deep down, deep down, he's what every dad aspires to be. Yeah. He's the dad that you wish you had, you know, like, <laughs> you're like, ah, if I. Well, my dad built me the stuff before he was brutally murdered in the war. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it it you can read it that way on one level, but on another level, it was so human that at the point when all these guys are thinking they're about to die, they're just sitting there just thinking about the chores back at home. And because they that's where they would like to be. I mean, obviously, they would like to be with their families doing really menial stuff to just make the as their lives go on rather than, you know, dying in a hail of gunfire. And it really was one of the most it well it is the most affecting conversation about a stove i've ever read usually yes. they're not that gripping no they don't tend to be <laughs> but anyway yeah anywhere you wanted to start with this part uh d- just to talk about a little bit about i guess the vavilov primov kind of dichotomy that we get here they're both commissars but of different regiments who are together in this spot but it, it i guess it just it doesn't even matter. It, what matters is just the sort of Krimov is this. I don't know. He's he's much more polished, straightforward. I guess I would say compared to Vavilov, who is that that true kind of peasant stock, and he's he's that sort of he's almost Tolstoyan in a lot of ways in the way that he's kind of really into just kind of. I don't know. He acts in the right way. It's not that he knows what he's doing or he knows what to do. He just has this sort of instinct, this level that he instinctually knows what he's supposed to be doing and, and how to get people around him to to do to work together. And that's actually really hard because, well, I'm quite a few chapters ahead writing post right now to stay ahead and not die. But there's going to be a lot of instances, I can say, where there are people not working together. I would say probably the Soviet Union is perhaps known more for not working together than for working together. So, um, And in the ways that they could not understand each other, we find much of the tragedy of the 20th century. <laughs> oh, that was a sick callback. <laughs> grad school, sign this man right now. Give him the biggest grad school contract you've ever seen. <laughs> I'm ready for the trade. 
<laughs> so anyways, I like Puppy Love. That's the kind of my point. Right. We'll, we'll see. We'll see more of Cream Love. They're both fine characters. I mean, no, no shade to either of them. But Kremov is a deeply sad man outside of combat, but outside yes. of that. Yes. 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 Um, speaking of, I want to go to a comment from uh, Discord user Leia, who says, Grossman packs a punch here in this brief exchange between Kremov and Vavilov when the former says he's there to settle a dispute between the commander and commissar of one of the infantry regiments. And Vavilov basically says, well, that's been settled now because they're both dead. He says, quote, they couldn't have been more different, even in appearance. They were like chalk and cheese. The commander was a straightforward man, the son of a peasant, while the commissar had a ring on one finger and always wore gloves. And now they are lying side by side. To the question about how ideology matters related to the question that you put in the, the blog post today, I think this exchange shows that maybe ultimately it doesn't. The commander, a soldier from a peasant family, and the commissar, a political officer, meet the same fate. Any arguments they could have had about how the war was being fought or the cause itself would evaporate in death. I think we also see this disappearance of ideology when the men are actively engaged in combat at the end of the chapter. Grossman gives us the general's harsh, wild, impetuous soul and Kremov's palpable sense of solidarity with those fighting with him. It seems the actual grid of battle digs deeper than ideology, which can be galvanizing, as mentioned in previous comments, but is perhaps only surface level. And I also want to bring in another comment from the Bookwoman Stories who says, you know, that I guess all ideologies die with death. And when the enemy is standing in front of you and attacking you, there's no time to think of ideology, just fight for your life. Which you see by right, the commissars getting right into the front line of battle. You know, if you've, I think typically, um, if you've seen a lot of media about the war from the Red Army's perspective, especially like non uh, media not from the Slavic world or from post-Soviet states, you'll tend to see the the commissars as sort of like this class apart, which were you know, inflicting heavy executions, heavy executions upon those who were not up to standard. And for sure, there were definitely we know there are many instances where you, because of how much uh, leniency they were given, absolutely abuses of power inflicted upon them, uh, you know, soldiers who were copped in a rock and a hard place between, uh, you know, hard headed commanders and also the, you know, the fight in front of them. I mean, you know, in any military, you're always going to deal with hard headed commanders. You know, now imagine some of them can just shoot you and not the people aren't going to ask that many questions as long as the paperwork works out for sure. That is that was the reality in many cases. However, there is also the case for many of them, maybe perhaps the more effective commissars who are right in the front lines in the trenches with the rest of the soldiers. Hey, Cameron. Yeah. What's a commissar? I, I, I'm almost certain there are people that, that don't know what a commissar is and think it's a normal military rank. Yeah. And it's actually a pretty important distinction. It is the role for someone whose responsibility is to sort of keep up the political morale and uh, enforce her sort of. How do I, how would you explain it? Like, I would say, keep up the political morale of the military. They're there to give speeches, explain yeah. the rightness of their cause. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's political education. It's, you know, Bolshevik morale, essentially. It's a unique role. I just wanted to point that out because we might be at a point where you're like, why does Grossman care about the commissars? Right. Yeah. So you've got, you know, people who are there to give you them good Marxist Leninist education on why the war is going well or if it's going badly, what they should be doing to make it happen better, you know, solve, as you see here, solve some internal issues. But the role can be, you know, it, it's a complex one too, right? And uh, Krimov, if you read Stalingrad, you know, when he is a unit he's with is surrounded, he becomes the de facto leader because of his actual authority, you know, not just uh, given by command, but by the fact that people 
really do listen to him, he becomes the leader until they break out of that um, encirclement uh, because of his actual efficacy in carrying out that role. I just wanted to bring that up in case anyone at this point was yeah, wondering. Because we've That's had some point. questions on, on military rank that we haven't adequately quite addressed yet. Yeah, for sure. But that's an important one. That's a very important one. Food for thought indeed. Okay, well, I think that's all we had to cover today. So we'll let you go for now, this time. Until tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>